Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, an educator at the Nature Institute and your host for In Dialogue with Nature, our podcast of recordings, conversations, and lecture presentations that explore a practice of a conscious and caring understanding of nature. Today's episode comes in two sections. To begin, I'll read a piece by Arthur Zients entitled Toward a Participative Science, which works through the example of how a participative science makes sense of the color blue coming to appear in the sky. His piece is exemplary in making the often slippery concept of what we mean by participation apparent. You'll see what he means, and in doing so, you'll get a real sense of what we mean by our overall orientation at the Nature Institute, where we are always engaging with nature through a participatory science. Then, in the second part of this presentation, I'll be in conversation with Elaine Kosrova, our editor of In Context, clarifying Arthur's main points and discussing why the piece is of such importance. Arthur's original comments first appeared in a 2003 interview conducted by MIT's Sloan School of Management. We've edited those comments and published them with the title Toward a Participative Science. You'll find this on our website in In Context, issue number 18. Arthur Zients, whose last name rhymes with science, but is spelled so differently, Z-A-J-O-N-C, is Professor Emeritus of Physics at Amherst College and the author of several publications that explore the relationship between science and the humanities. Besides his many accomplishments in quantum physics, Zients is also the scientific coordinator for dialogue with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he sits on the Nature Institute's advisory board. And now, here is Toward a Participative Science. Do scientific models depict reality or not? In Goethe's period, most scientists thought they depicted reality. People thought that models showed us the hidden way the world was. The world was matter and motion. Goethe, by contrast, critiqued those assumptions, that basic attitude, and he took a much more phenomenological stance. That is to say, he thought that the data themselves were the reality. The models were useful, but they were basically a kind of scaffolding, as he described it. What one was attempting to come to was not a perfect model, but an insight. The moment of discovery, where one perceives the hidden coherence in nature, is the longed-for objective in science as opposed to a model that somehow represents that insight in terms of a mathematical or mechanical system. Goethe brought this critical function to science near the year 1800. You see this happening in the philosophy of science effectively around 1900, because Goethe was about 100 years ahead of the so-called golden era of the philosophy of science, when the sciences underwent exactly this kind of critique in the conventional academic disciplines. So he anticipated that. He also anticipated the phenomenologists, like Husserl and others. In Goethe's scientific approach, one sets aside models and systematically investigates the phenomena themselves through three stages. What he called the first stage of empirical phenomena, the second stage of scientific phenomena, and the third stage of pure archetypal phenomena. 
Throughout these three stages, one moves from initial observations of empirical phenomena to a more systematic exploration achieved by changing the conditions of appearance so that you can distinguish the essential from the unessential factors. That's the scientific domain. Then, after having made that whole journey, you come to a point when you stand before the archetypal phenomena itself, where only the essential conditions of appearances are present in the simplest and most eloquent instance of the law, one you can see. That is, you're not writing the law down mathematically, but actually perceiving it. Here's an example. The world of color is filled with casual experiences of color. You open your eyes, it's a fall day, the fields are filled with beautiful colors of nature, and the sky is gray and blue with clouds. The sun is starting to set. It's late afternoon. So you notice the world of color. You are in the world of empirical phenomena. You begin to organize those colors into categories. Some colors are associated with surfaces, like the color of the table, the books, or the leaves. Other colors are not, like the blue of the sky. There's no surface for that blue patch of sky up there. So we see a definite color, but it's not anywhere in particular. It's not localized at 100 meters in front of us, or one mile in front of us. It's a phenomenon, but it's not localized. Goethe therefore made a distinction between what he called chemical colors on surfaces and physical colors like the blue of the sky. So what he called physical colors were physical only in the sense that a physical process was generating them, but not locating them on a surface where chemical colors occurred. The colors of a third group are physiological or psychological in origin. When you close your eye and press on it, you see colors. Dream colors are another example. Such colors don't depend on an outside stimulus. So the first thing that starts to happen is that one moves away from naive experiences to classifications of experience. One begins to organize one's experiences based on their types and based on the conditions of appearance as Goethe constantly remarked. And those conditions of appearance can be varied by the experimenter. So you begin to realize which conditions are important and which are not. This helps you to separate out a certain class of color experiences that share a certain set of essential conditions of appearance. And then there's another class that has a slightly different set of conditions for appearance, or maybe very different conditions. Now you've got a set of domains. Let's say in one of those domains, for example, the domain that includes the blue of the sky, you ask yourself, is there a way to understand, in terms of actual perception, the simplest features that constitute the blue sky experience, or the red sunset experience? Something like that. What are the elements that must be present in their simplest number? There might be complexities that come in, but we look for the simplest conditions that produce, say, the blue experience of a physical color, like the color of the sky.
For Goethe, the three conditions were light, darkness, and the turbid medium. You have the light of the sun, which enters into the turbid medium of the atmosphere. One looks through that turbid medium, illuminated by light, into darkness, namely the depths of space. Take the light away, and you have just the depths of space behind the night sky. Or take away the turbid atmosphere, as on the moon, and again, the blue sky disappears. Bring in the combination of light and atmosphere. Look through that turbid medium now illuminated by light, and you see the blueness of the day sky. So, an essential condition of appearance is the luminous quality of the sun. A second is the turbid medium of the atmosphere. And a third, the dark depths of space into which one looks. However, look through the turbid atmosphere directly toward the sun instead of toward the blackness of space. And you don't see blue any longer, but the reds of the sunset. This triad of light, darkness, and the turbid medium provides the elementary factors that, in one set of relationships, give the blue of the sky and, in another, give the red of the sunset. You can take a fish tank filled with water, shine a light through it, and put a little milk or some kind of turbid element into the water. As you gradually increase the amount of milk, the transmitted light goes from yellow through orange and, just before extinction, gets quite red. The sun moves through that same color sequence because as it sets, it's moving through more and more of the atmosphere and the light path is longer and longer through the atmosphere. You can take that same turbid medium and, instead of looking toward the light through the turbid medium, you can look through the fish tank from the side, perpendicular to the direction of the light. First the water is clear, and then as you put a little bit of milk in it, the milky water gradually takes on a bit of a blue color especially if you turn off the room lights and put a piece of black paper or something dark behind the tank. It's not as dramatic as the blue sky, but it definitely has a blue cast. It's the same thing you'll see in a smoky pool hall where there's a kind of blue haze. There are shaded lights shining on the pool table and a turbid medium. The smoke passes through the air. You're looking through that light into the dark perimeter of the pool hall, which is typically not well lit, and you see a kind of blue haze. Anytime you have a light-filled medium, such as water with a bit of milk in it, or a hazy, smoke-filled room, and you look through that light into the darkness behind, you'll get the blue tint. If it's of sufficient depth, then you'll get the blue of the sky and the blue of the ocean. Such experiences became for Goethe an archetypal phenomenon. The archetypal phenomenon is still just a phenomenon, but it provides an occasion for insight into the essential conditions of appearance. That is to say, you see the blue as both phenomenon and as idea. At the same time that you see the blue of the sky, you also see the relationship. 
You can either see the blue of the sky, knowing it's an archetypal phenomenon, or you can see it simply as a blue sky. What distinguishes a blue sky being seen as an archetype is that, while you're seeing it, you also bring the cognitive dimension of light, darkness, turbidity. And you see that triad co-present with the phenomenon of the blueness of the sky. You see the enabling condition. Of course, you don't really see the archetypal phenomenon with your eyes because it's a pure ideal. But, on the other hand, you do see it because the blue of the sky and the enabling conditions, that triad, are co-present and have to be there in order for the blue to appear. So, in some ways, it's the crossing point between the phenomenal and conceptual domains. You are at that threshold. That moment of seeing is the moment of discovery, of insight, of apersu, as Goethe called it. Everything hangs on this apersu, on the possibility of such a perception. Real knowledge is, for Goethe, a kind of seeing. It's not just opening your eyes and seeing what's around you in the naive sense, but it's basically moving oneself inwardly to the point where one can stand before the blue of the sky, seeing it not only as simple blue, but also as the co-presence or instantiation of these three factors. So, one lives in this liminal space between perception and theory, but theory in its original sense of to behold. Theory does not mean to compute or to model or to calculate. In its Greek root, it actually means to behold. We still have that in our colloquial expression, oh, I see, when we mean I understand. You didn't see it first. Now you get it. Now you see it. And theory is basically the Greek way of saying, now I see. To do theory means to come to the place where one sees more deeply, where one beholds. So it has, in that sense, a direct encounter associated with it, as opposed to one mediated through what we would normally call theory. Namely, a model that stands between us and experience. It's quite the obverse. One actually heightens experience to the point of true, intimate beholding. This view works wonderfully, I think, across the grain. The whole idea of science is, of course, based on objectification. To become objective in your knowing, which typically means distancing. Conventional science objectifies by taking an experience and replacing it by a set of more fundamental objects such as atoms, molecules, interactions, and so forth. Note to the listener, I'm about to read a German word, M-I-E, that's pronounced me, and it's going to likely be confusing as I read this sentence. But you just need to remember that what the me refers to is polarizable molecules. Here's the sentence. So, as opposed to the blue of the sky, physics says it's me scattering and the blue results from small, polarizable molecules interacting with electromagnetic fields, setting up secondary waves. 
This leads to a differential scattering cross-section with a dependence on the fourth power of the frequency. In this way, you have an objectified account. And now it's been protected from the dangers presented by my subjective experience. Namely, I see blue, and I like blue a lot, or what other subjective associations might be there. Goethe took a very different approach. He was aware of the dangers of personal interpretation and inappropriate subjectivity. So he sought to mitigate those dangers in a variety of ways. But, as I see it, his resolution of the problem was contrary to the above goal of objectification. Rather than becoming distant from phenomena by taking models as the intermediary, Goethe sought to refine and cultivate the investigator's capacities for perception. Science says to step back and gain a distance because you're inevitably going to make a mess of the subject you're investigating. Goethe said, no, become more graceful, become more delicate in your observing. He called it a delicate empiricism. He said that there exists a delicate empiricism in which the observer becomes united with the observed, thereby raising observation to true theory. He said this ability belongs to a very highly cultivated age in the future. So this delicate empiricism allows one to come close to the phenomena under investigation, as opposed to having to move further away. One actually unites with the object under observation. Rather than disconnecting from nature, one is participating in it. Through that participation, something happens. Here's one of the other elements from Goethe that is key for me, what I call Bildung, which has two meanings in German. On the one hand, it means education, but really it means formation. By attending to an object or phenomenon, one moves into and participates in that phenomenon and, as a consequence, brings an activity into oneself which is normally outside. I see the blue. I bring the blue into myself. There's a blue experience. That blue experience actually cultivates something in me. The closer I attend, the more shades of blue I will be able to discern. The conditions of appearance will become more apparent. So, through the process of attention, there's also a process in me of transformation. Goethe said, Every object well contemplated creates an organ within us. So contemplate the object well. That creates a capacity within. That capacity is then required for the last step of perceiving the archetypal phenomenon. If you don't have the organ, you won't be able to perceive it. You'll just see the blue sky. So there's a kind of hermeneutic circle in which I attend to the outside with the capacities I presently have. That attention then cultivates capacities within that are built on the rudimentary, you might say elementary, forms of capacities and organs I currently have. It cultivates them and develops them into a new, more vigorous and attentive form of cognition. I bring these to bear on the phenomenon before me, and it goes again through another cycle. Goethe's notion of science is transformative. 
You do not come with a pre-existing set of capacities that include, say, rational, deductive capacities, as well as eyes and ears and so on, the physical senses. Rather, there's a kind of organic, dynamic sense of the human being and the human being's potential. That potential is cultivated and actuated through an active engagement with the world. I hope you enjoyed that reading. Arthur Zions's words, while clear in and of themselves, are far-reaching in their implications. In hopes of making his ideas as accessible as possible, I've asked Elaine Kosrova, editor of the Nature Institute's publication In Context, to join me in a conversation about the reading. We explore his key insights and how they relate to us as individuals and to the wider cultural context. Here's our conversation. Today we're going to talk about this essay that we both read that you know I'm very excited about by Arthur Zients called Toward a Participative Science. I'm so close to it that I feel that I don't really have questions about the essay itself in terms of what he's trying to convey to a reader. Mm-hmm. But I realize that's not really helpful to a listener when I have it all understood. It's much more helpful to a listener to engage when the questions are really living in an individual. And I rightly or wrongly perceive you to be a living individual. <laughs> Today I am, for sure. Very nice. And so you did read the essay. I did. actually read it a few times. And I liked it more and more each time. I mean, partly because, honestly, it helps me do my job better at the Nature Institute because it describes Gertian science in a way that distinguishes it from, say, what the naturalists did back in the day or what a naturalist would do today, a sort of documentation of things in the natural world, which is wonderful and valuable. But what we do at the Nature Institute is much more than that. And he really articulated that, I think, so well in this essay, through the three stages of Gertian science. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear you say much more than that. Can you put words on it at this point of what you mean by much more than that? Uh, Well, it's really the three stages that he talks about, but it's that last one, the pure archetypal experience. That is really the mission at the Nature Institute for people who participate in our courses, is not to just be enjoying nature and cataloging things. It's to reach an insight. It's to reach a coherence about the organism or the phenomena that you are observing a sort of unity, what John McAllis called in his talk not that long ago, this resonant space. I think this essay really articulates that well because of the example, honestly. The blue sky example is such a good one. So you hit on, I think, half of the point of the essay in terms of the big points. And the other piece for me, we'll go through all this, but just to hear you initially, the essay is called toward a participative science. And as you said, those three stages and the the archetypal phenomena, he then goes on to say in the second half of the essay to try and tease out what he means by, well, participating 
you're actually participating in the phenomena instead of standing outside of it. And in participating, he's claiming that it's another way of being objective, that it's, it is objective, but it's another way of being objective. But I'm wondering what you thought about this notion of participative and that you're participating in the appearing of the blue sky. That's one of the insights that happens when you understand what an archetypal phenomenon is. You know, when I read that part, I was thinking about my gardening this summer and how it was so different from last summer. So last summer, I didn't really know what I was doing and I was just kind of sticking things in the ground, right? And seeing what would happen. This is vegetable gardening. And this year, I started things from seed and really sort of watched the development so keenly. I was so amazed, honestly, that I put this little tiny seed in the ground and started to become from that seed. And I felt like I was gaining this kind of intimacy, this participation with the growing of the vegetables, unlike last year. There was an intimacy and a caring that developed. And I think that's really what he's talking about in terms of participation, at least some aspect of it. Probably there's more to it than that. As I read that section, it brought to mind this wonderful experience I had this year. I think that's a great example, and that's the way you make it your own, right? As you think of examples in your own life, and is this analogous or not? Right. And how does that help me actually maybe more deeply understand, make sense of my own feelings of intimacy mm-hmm. in, your, in your garden, right? Yeah, exactly. You have some concepts of it, and that understanding somehow actually feeds into your experience. And when I say somehow, he's going to lay that out. We'll go through that. Right. But there is something mysterious because you know you're more connected, mm-hmm. and yet you kind of think, oh, it's just a feeling, And no, it it is a feeling, but it's an informed feeling. It partakes of, like you said, a greater intimacy. Because it's always about attention. Last year, my attention was, eh, you know, i got to get this done. And this year, my attention was so much better, so much more focused. But then is it a little catch-22? Because this year I started to care, so then I attended more, and I attended more because I cared. It's that, um, what's that phrase in his article? The hermeneutic circle. What I suggest we do is keep your garden in mind as we're talking, and we'll go through each section, because one of the things I want to do is try and create a vocabulary to share between us that comes out of the essay, but for the listener as well, to be able to begin to have their own understanding through the vocabulary that he develops and what he means. And there's a flow to the essay that builds and builds and builds. And so it's logical in the sequence, but there's something also not just logical, but I think a feeling builds as well of understanding that you'll see what I mean, I think, when we get to the archetypal phenomena that's more than logical. And we'll see if that becomes clear as we go. In terms of the introduction, I'm a guy that highlights and underlines and makes bold. And when I look at the introduction, I have this sentence that's in the middle paragraph, Mm -hmm. last sentence, underlined. Moment of discovery where one perceives the hidden coherence in nature 
is the longed-for objective in science, as opposed to a model that somehow represents that insight in terms of a mathematical or mechanical system. This phrase, hidden coherence, we perceive the hidden coherence because we know everything in nature is coherent. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here and be able to reproduce and continually appear in different generations of itself. Mm-hmm. I have many oak trees in my yard. They're consistently oak trees. And there's a hidden coherence in the oak tree and its relation to the soil and to the sky and to all the other creatures. And today we're going to look at, well, what's the hidden coherence in a blue sky? Something we always see. And after the essay is the hiddenness, not so hidden. Mm-hmm. That's one of the questions, right? right? In terms of how the blue sky is a coherent expression of the relationships that he will bring forth. Right. But to get back to his critique of the model, you know, I studied science in school. I was a nutrition major, and so I saw a lot of cellular models diagramming different pathways in the cell. And at the time, it seemed to open my eyes to the things that went on in the cell, and yet at the same time, every diagram or model was static, and that's the big misleading factor with models is there's a kind of stasis that's not true to nature. I find the challenge in, in terms of thinking through a phenomena, if you want to study the parts, you're studying, you're collecting data as he describes in the essay, but the challenge then is to not stop at the parts, to not have a collection of parts, right? And that's what you're talking about now. Okay, where's the coherence? I can't just have parts. Where's the wholeness now? Is that right? Yes, and I think you're right. A model never desires to be static. Mm -hmm. It always wants to be a model of a dynamic process. But because you're right, the thinking process we engage with a model Mm -hmm. tends to bring forth a static picture. Right. And as you said, that's clearly not true to any living phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So that juxtaposition. And then the question is, how can we have a model of science? How does that make sense? And that's what we're going to pursue here through this example of the blue sky, right? Exactly. A modelless understanding of the experience of a blue sky. Mm, Yes. And not only the experience of a blue sky, but the cognitive understanding. Mm -hmm. And as you said, on a model, we have a diagram of all these parts, But really what makes it dynamic is those relationships between the parts that are constantly in motion. And those relationships are stable, but everything is always moving. Mm. And so to be able to see the relationship, which is not a thing, which can only be perceived by a mind such as ours that can deal with concepts consciously. Exactly. That's where understanding comes. Yes, And it's a dynamic understanding rather than a static understanding because you're just seeing the relationships as they unfold Mm -hmm. and what appears as a consequence of those relationships. So let's look at the three stages of Gertian science. You said you liked this, like it was very helpful. Mm -hmm. And you've already named some of the aspects of it, but why don't we go through in terms of his language in terms of these three phases. He says the first stage of empirical phenomena the second stage of scientific phenomena, and the third stage of pure archetypal phenomena. And then he goes on to distinguish the different ways in which we experience color. And one of those is what he calls the sky phenomena, where we perceive color in the sky. 
and he makes a really great point that color in the sky is not locatable. Yes, it's in the sky, but it's everywhere. I know. I love that. Yeah. Yes. And that's a distinction from a color that appears on a surface. Mm -hmm. And that's a distinction from a color, as he calls them, physiological or physical colors, colors we see in dreams. Mm -hmm. Or when I close my eyes right now and push on my eye, colors come forth. That's a physiological color, right? Yeah. So already he started to do the scientific activity. He says it's no longer naive. It's not just all color. Mm Mm-hmm. We're making distinctions of these classes of color, these categories, the ways in which they appear more specifically. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the essay, he's going to deal with just sky phenomena and considering what are the conditions under which the color blue appears. You remember, even in this first introduction, the moment of discovery where one perceives the hidden coherence in nature is the longed-for objective. So he's saying the objective of science is to get to that coherence. One method for doing that is with models. We're going to have another method Mm -hmm. that doesn't utilize models. So that's one of the things that's going to distinguish us between a model-making science, which I'll just loosely say now is conventional science, because as you said, you were taught in school, I was taught in school. If we're going to be objective, we need a model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do something else, and we're going to claim to be objective as well. That's for every person to decide for themselves whether this can be taken seriously or not. So going back to this, now I'm looking in the middle of this section and he starts with, now you've got a set of domains. I'll just read this paragraph because he does something here that I want to point out. When we explore color at the Nature Institute in the workshops, and we have workshops that particularly explore the nature of color. In our foundation year course with the students last year, we spent a whole week on color. We did just this. We looked at colors that appear and what shadows happen with light, what's called colored shadows. We looked at atmospheric colors. We looked at colors uh, as they appear on pieces of paper in a darkened room. So we looked at all these different kinds of color phenomena, and then we had different classes of them. But never, ever, ever did we give away the secret as he does here in terms of just naming what are the factors, what are the conditions that make blue appear. Because the idea is is that an individual is to be given the opportunity for those ahas, just like with every scientist who's doing an original experiment that comes up with an aha that we all later accept as, oh, that's true the joy of a student to come to that on their own, as opposed to being just told this is the law, is a very different kind of building of a relationship to color. Which is not to say that in Gartian science, you can't use existing, what would you call them? Knowledge? Insights? Yeah, existing knowledge, existing facts even. It's not like you have to discover everything yourself. This article is, that's my point, is like, I didn't know that the three conditions were light, darkness, and the turbid medium, but I still think I can have a different experience of the blue sky knowing that now, but not having discovered it myself. I agree with you because if we all had to start from the beginning, we wouldn't get too far in a given lifetime. I actually hear that. And I'm just trying to say there's something about doing the experiments that Goethe and Newton did. We're not dealing with Newton today. Newton had an alternative 
theory, which is a model-based mathematical theory. So you're absolutely right. My heart is warm to hear that even though you got this just through reading it and the insight was given to you, you still had an experience of the blue sky that you found, what, more rewarding, more helpful, more intimate? What words are we going to say? You said it was... Yeah, almost more magical in a way. I mean, maybe that's not a good science word, but it's just more of a wonder. You need light and you need darkness. There's something so yin-yang about that that's, <laughs> that's just, you know, with the turbid medium then between the two. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. So you've heard this term. As you're the editor of In Context, I know you've seen this term before. Rather than yin-yang, the term we use is a polarity, that light and dark are a polarity. Mm. And just like electrical valence or a magnet valence, we have a positive pole and a negative pole. Mm -hmm. You need both poles for a magnet to be there and for things to move between them and for them to be attracted and repulsed. So every phenomenon, in terms of the way we conceive of it, has a polar aspect. And so what we're saying, the polar aspect here for color to appear... It requires a changing relationship of light and dark, and it requires a turbid medium. But I just want to say that the word polarity, possibly because it's in our politics these days, just feels like things going away from each other, you know, at opposite ends. When I thought of the yin-yang, it felt like a wholeness there. Yes. So think about all the adjectives for yin-yang, light and dark, male and female, heaven and earth. The idea here, which is our idea as well, is that the universe is dynamic and all creative activity only occurs through the occurrence of a tension. And that creative tension is expressed through the polarities Mm. moving Mm. in and out of one another. And you feel that tension when you Mm. feel a magnet and you try and put the two poles, Mm -hmm. the two similar poles together. They push Mm. each other away or they attract, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a tension and you can feel it. And when you're thinking and you get excited about these concepts, light and dark and turbidity, there's also a tension in you because you're trying mm. to put this together in your mind. And once you get it, there's also yeah. a real release, right? I get it. I see. I understand. But it's a creative activity and a struggle until you get it. Sure. All these things are akin to one another. Because this is the way that life moves (laughs) through these polarities and these Mm. tensions. That's the Taoist insight. And in that regard, it's very similar to the insight about polarities. And it's also an insight about how our mind makes sense of things. I see that. Yeah. In this modelless way. Yeah. So now let's go to a couple of examples. You gave away the punchline. But all of our listeners have already (laughs) read the essay. So it's okay. Or they've heard me read it at least if they haven't read it. Right. Let's review what the punchline is. I'll read the end of the paragraph before to set up where we get to the punchline. So the paragraph that starts with, now you've got a set of domains. Mm -hmm. And he's referring to the possible domains of sky phenomena, chemical phenomena, physiological phenomena, but we're going to pick the sky. Now you've got a set of domains. Let's say in one of those domains, for example, Mm. the domain that includes the blue of the sky, you ask yourself, Is there a way to understand, in terms of actual perception, the simplest features that constitute the blue sky experience or the red sunset experience? Something like that. 
what are the elements that must be present in their simplest number? There might be complexities that come in, but we look for the simplest conditions that produce, say, the blue experience of a physical color, like the blue of the sky. Okay, so now here he gives away Goethe's insight. For Goethe, the three conditions were light, darkness, and the turbid medium. So I want to read his examples because he gives multiple examples very quickly. And as a person who's trying to get what he's saying, you need to be able to hold each one of these independently in your imagination Mm -hmm. and use them as examples to come to an understanding of what he's saying. So first example, you have the light of the sun, which enters into the turbid medium of the atmosphere. One looks through that turbid medium, illuminated by light into darkness namely the depths of space. So let's be clear about what he's saying. You have the light of the sun, we all get that, which enters the turbid medium of the atmosphere. So turbid just means that a particular medium, in this case the sky, has other things in it that make it not completely clear. So a turbid medium in this case is, we know the atmosphere is full of stuff. The most concrete thing is if you're in a darkened room and you turn on a light in a certain way, all of a sudden you see a room is full of dust and you're breathing that. You realize, oh my goodness, this is here all the time. It's a turbid medium. Similarly, he's going to use the illustration of a fish tank and putting milk into the fish tank. So first of all, you have a fish tank with clear water. Then you add a little milk and the water's no longer clear. You've made it turbid. Yes? Yes. So that's the concept of turbid. And that's always needed. He's going to give examples of that. And the other thing, at least I don't think about regularly, that I'm always forced to think about if I want to think through, oh, why is the sky blue? (laughs) Take the light away and you have just the depths of space behind Mm. the night sky. So I always forget in my daylight when I look at the blue sky and behind the sun, that night sky is still always there, right? It's black out there. But because we don't see that, we forget that it's always there. Yeah, I had to read that over a few times because he was saying illuminated by light into darkness. And I'm like, wait, wait where's the darkness? <laughs> because all I'm, see- all I'm seeing is light. But yeah, if you imagine like the-, the earth and the sun shining on it, at a certain point, there's darkness all around, even though parts of it are illuminated. And so now let's see another key aspect of this work. When I look into the sky right now, I see the blue sky. I don't see the darkness. Mm -hmm. I can only see the the blue sky and the darkness and the sun together and hold the concept of the sky as a turbid medium in my imagination because there all three can be present at the same time. But in my actual perception, I don't see the turbid medium and I don't see the darkness behind, right? But in my imagination, and the odd thing is, you know exactly what I mean. And you know what I mean by see it, but we're not seeing it with our physical eyes. So already we're doing this human thing of how we bring understanding into appearance. Yes. I was going to say appearance into understanding, but no, you're right. Because certain things are not appearing, but we can bring them. They can appear in our mind. I don't want to say a model in our mind, but we can, we can sort of bring them together. We're seeing actual conditions, right? That's why we're not calling it a model. Right. We're just seeing in our mind what is always there, which we usually don't, because we don't perceive it in the here and now. So to finish his paragraph, he says, take away the light and you have just the depths of space behind the night sky. Yeah. Then, or take away the turbid atmosphere as on the moon, and again, the blue sky disappears. Isn't that amazing? So it requires all three conditions 
for the blue sky to appear. Bring in the combination of light and atmosphere. Look through that turbid medium now illuminated by light and you see the blueness of the sky. So he's just taking all these three aspects and rearranging them and showing you that they're all essential. Mm -hmm. And by the example of the moon, you see, oh, I get it. (laughs) No blue sky on the moon. Yeah, that was news to me that there's no turbidity on the moon's atmosphere. Yes. So now he goes on to say, so an essential condition of appearances is thus the luminous quality of the sun, a second is the turbid medium of the atmosphere, and a third the dark depths of space into which one looks. However, look through the turbid atmosphere directly toward the sun instead of toward the blackness of space, and you don't see blue any longer but the reds of the sunset. Mm. So now he says something, this next sentence also shows you that our understanding, like life itself, has to be dynamic and moving to make sense of what we experience. This triad of light, darkness, and the turbid medium provides the elementary factors that, in one set of relationships, gives the blue of the sky, and in another, give the red of the sunset. So all three factors are there, but what's changed? Now he's going to give another example for us to be able to have an understanding of why red Mm -hmm. versus blue when we're looking straight at the sun. So he does that by way of a fish tank. You can take a fish tank filled with water, shine a light through it, put a little milk or some kind of turbid element into the water. As you gradually increase the amount of milk, the transmitted light goes from yellow through orange and just before extinction gets quite red. So now red has appeared again, but in a different set of conditions. Now we're in a fish tank with water and adding milk, but he's increasingly turbidifying the medium. He adds more milk, the medium's getting more and more turbid. Mm -hmm. And as it gets more and more turbid, the colors go through yellow to orange to red. Were you able to picture that and get what he meant? The second or third time I read through, more able to get that. I, I think it's also worth noting within the context of the stages of Gartian science that now we're in this more scientific stage where you're organizing appearances. And again, as I was saying in the beginning, this was important to me to clarify that this approach to science has rigor, as you were saying. Yes. And I think one of the things that is compelling, and he's going to address this a little later, is that while we're having these different experiences, he's going to go to the pool hall next, but we have the fish tank and the sky phenomena. These are also aesthetic phenomena. You perceive them, you sense them. And when that happens, Mm -hmm. a part of you that a word we don't use anymore, your soul gets involved. You love blue or you don't like blue. And that's always there in this form of working. You're going to have a personal reaction. But you see the lawfulness is independent of your personal reaction. Whether you like blue or not, it's going to appear under these conditions. That's the lawful objective aspect. The subjective is your aesthetic response, I like it, I don't like it. But in our science, because it is sense-based in terms of experiential, there's always going to be that dimension of the experience. Whereas if you're doing Krebs cycle, there's not going to be that dimension of experience. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Or if you're working more specifically with color and light through wavelength and mathematics, there's not going to be that experience. And so oftentimes people will say, oh, that's really nice. Yeah, right. But that's that's art. That's not science. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to say, well, actually, it's an artful science. 
And also there's this, this feeling aspect that seems to make it less sciencey, you know, in the mainstream world. A connection, as I said before, an intimacy, a joy perhaps. <laughs> you don't hear much about that in, in textbooks. I think part of what you're saying is that the feeling aspect, and you said a joy, and you kind of held it back, but I think that's the hallmark that you're on the mark with this work, is that you're in a state of wonder. Yep. And this is what happens because you're seeing how the world unfolds in a coherent, lawful way that you get to participate in. And I think this is why we often get so many graduate students asking to come to the Nature Institute to kind of rediscover their particular field because they've lost touch with that joy, that enthusiasm, that wonder. Yes, I think you're mm. right. Following on, just to make this as clear as we can so that when we get to the what I'll call one of the big punchlines, mm. the shoe can drop. You can take that same turbine medium and instead of looking toward the light through the turbine medium, you can look through the fish tank from the side perpendicular to the direction of the light. First, the water is clear. Then as you put a little bit of milk in it, the milky water gradually takes on a bit of blue color. Especially if you turn off the room lights and put a piece of black paper or something dark behind the tank. You see, he's now mimicking mm -hmm. the, the sun phenomena. Putting the black behind the tank is like us knowing the, the dark sky is behind the blue sky, right? Exactly, right. The dark sky of space. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, mm -hmm. and you and your critical mind can make that analogy and see that the conditions are analogous. Mm -hmm. And part of the proof of the pudding is the phenomena appears under the same conditions in the same way and in the same sequence, yes? Yes. And then he says it's not as dramatic as the blue sky, but it definitely has a blue cast. This is all science in the laboratory, right? right? So what he says is... It's it's the same thing you'll see in a smoky pool hall where there's a kind of blue haze. There are shaded lights shining on the pool table mm -hmm. and a turbine medium, the smoke passing through the air. Yeah. That's what the turbine medium is, right? The smoke passing through the air. You look through that light into the dark perimeter of the pool hall, which is typically not well lit, and you see a kind of blue haze. This is his cinematic example, I think. His cinematic example, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. But you see how you're understanding the fish tank, mm -hmm. the sun, the sky. Because it is lawful and the conditions are present in the pool hall, you experience and understand simultaneously. But you only understand because you understand those conditions that are present. That's right. But you're seeing them in the actual world in the actual things. In the actual things. So we've done the science, right? Mm -hmm. We've done all the different changing of conditions. We found a lawfulness. So we went from the empirical phenomena. Oh, look, there's blue in the sky. Oh, look, there's blue over there. There's blue here. That's what he's saying. Okay, that's just there. That's in our experience. It's noticeable. Mm -hmm. Then we classified it. And now we go to this next layer, what he calls the archetypal phenomena. And that has everything to do with the relationship between conceiving and perceiving. Because we're talking about concepts now. Turbid is a concept. Light-filled atmosphere is a concept. Mm -hmm. We know it in its specifics, in its physical living examples. Mm -hmm. Blue sky, fish tank, pool hall. But those concepts come together with your experience of the blue sky and somehow, as you said, your blue sky experience, you hesitatingly use the word magical. <laughs> 
you hesitate because we're talking about science, so you can't <laughs> use that. But I think what you're saying is there's something a little bit wondrous and joyous because you're not only understanding more, mm-hmm. you're perceiving more fully. Yes, and in fact, what I was perceiving is something that felt more 3D in the world. Mm. There was Mm. this 3D quality now in the sky that before was just like a sheet of blue. And now it was a much different concept in my mind. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of what you're saying is blue as a concept. Let me not put words up, but let me say it this way and then see if this rings true for you. Blue out there in the sky or blue in the fish tank or blue in the pool hall, the blue of the smoke, is what you're seeing is actually not a static thing, blue as a thing, but you're seeing the blue smoke in the pool hall bluing. The smoke is being blued. Yes, right. The sky is bluing Mm. all the time. We think Mm. it's just there, but what you've come to an understanding of through the use of your imagination, picturing all these things together, Mm-hmm. and seeing the relationships between them is that this is a constant activity. Wherever you're seeing kind of blue that is rises in an atmosphere, blue smoke, a turbid medium in the fish tank, you're actually seeing an ac- activity that is dynamic. It's happening all the time. It's not static. Yes, right. Right? Yeah. And the modeling part of us and the thingifying part of us, mm. the spatializing part of us that wants to see things as definable and locatable. Remember, blue in the sky is not locatable. Not locatable, right. It's Mm. it's an activity. Mm. Whenever your imagination engages, which it is all the time, this is just making explicit what is happening all the time. Yeah. You're now conscious of those conditions. So you're conscious in your imagination. And when you are, something happens in us that's joyous because the creatures we are find joy in understanding. And in the idea of activity, too. There's a living quality, right? Because it's active. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. And do you see how in our conversation, we're just choosing different aspects to highlight, but all this stuff is going on. When I say stuff, there's a non-technical term. All this (laughs) stuff is going on simultaneously, including those conditions that make the sky blue. All we've done is make what is implicit in the bluing of the sky. The sky is bluing all the time. What is implicit in that bluing, we've made explicit. That's the conditions. And we've made them explicit Mm -hmm. through naming them as concepts and seeing how those concepts already are related to one another. We didn't relate them. We related them in a way that brought forth understanding. But the important point we're saying is we're actually revealing what is already occurring And we're becoming conscious of it in the process of revealing. That's a really significant point. Yes. And in that we can say no model. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it already exists. We just have to reveal it. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're revealing it to ourselves. And the kind of selves we are can appreciate those two positions at once. Mm. There's me who was, what we'll say, naive about how the bluing of the sky works. There's me that's no longer naive about that. And there's me that can see the disparity between the naive me and the not naive me and can laugh. 
in terms of the joy of it, but also there's, as you said, a humility because the humility comes with all the world is wondrous. Mm. It's only through my thingifying the, everything that's active that makes it boring and not wondrous. Mm-hmm. Once I bring myself to meet what is already living by making myself living in my thinking. Yes. Aha. Aha. There's the word that John McAllis likes so much. We are resonant world in me, at least in relation to bluing. Yeah. But remember, in relation to bluing, it's very specific. It's not I'm wholly resonant with the world all the time. Right. Because most of my experience of the world is just labeling and calling it blue and having no understanding. Indeed. Yeah, that's true. This brings to mind a concept that Craig likes to talk about a lot through this practice, these three stages and that we are changed, we develop these organs of perception. I love that idea because it does feel now when I look at the blue sky that something has shifted inside me. And I don't exactly know where the organ is, but there's a quality of being that changes. And it feels organ-like or organic, organ-like does but let's ground it in what we've been reading right right and arthur uses these terms as well he talks about goethe here's the goethe quote it's near the end of the essay Mm. goethe said every object well contemplated creates an organ within us that's right but let's be clear that the organ that was created was the organ for understanding bluing Mm -hmm. in the sky Mm -hmm. yes but not just bluing we now understand how the range of colors we see Mm -hmm. from blue to red come into appearance through changing conditions of light and darkness and turbidity Mm -hmm. so you've created an organ and now with that organ, you can ever refine it. That's the next point that he, that he talks about. Mm. So let's mm. talk about your first level of transformation is recognizing bluing and the color phenomena from blue to red. Mm. That's mm-hmm. the organ that you developed. And as to where it lives, it is an imaginal organ because you created it through disciplining your imagination to look specifically at certain contexts and conditions and to find the relationship between them. So it only lives in the doing. That organ is there like all your other organs. Mm -hmm. It's now part of you and is always at work in you, even though I'm not thinking about what my kidney's doing right now. It's doing a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Your bluing organ is there. And when you look at the sky, Mm -hmm. the sky will now forever be a richer experience. By our analogy, your organ is participating in that bluing, because without that organ, you wouldn't have that deeper experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're experiencing what is actually there, quote, out there right. in the blue sky. But let's remember when I say it's, quote, out there in the blue sky, you also brought it inside you because you only see all those things together in your imagination. But it's an imagination that's true to the lawfulness of the world. Mm-hmm. Right, So that's what I mean by it's a disciplined imagination. You don't get to just fantasize about whatever you want and think to come to an understanding of blue. Clearly, that's the scientific part. Yes, and that's the rigor objective part. Mm -hmm. And we always do this work with others because, oh, I see a little green over there. Do you see that on the edge of the blue? 
Well, actually, I don't.、Mm. Ten other people. Actually, I don't.、Hmm. Okay, John, what's that about? <laughs> and then that's a different question. It just continually <laughs> opens up. Right. So science is always a communal activity. Let's look at it in the Goethe quote. Goethe said, "Every object well contemplated."、Mm-hmm. Another way to say this is ours is a contemplative science. Indeed, yeah. Ours is not an analytical science. And what contemplation brings forth is an understanding that I am always involved in participating in any phenomena that appears. We've just demonstrated that in the blue of the sky. Remember, other creatures don't necessarily perceive the sky as blue; they perceive it as coherent in their own way.、Mm-hmm. But a creature organized such as I am. Not only sees it as blue,、mm-hmm. I can understand why I see it as blue, and part of that is understanding it's a creature physiologically oriented as I am, that has the ocular、mm-hmm. structure that I have, that has the nerve、right. connections to the brain that I have.、Right. Other creatures don't have that, but I can understand under all those conditions, this is what appears is blue, and in an act of contemplation, I can appreciate not only that it's blue for me, that it's not blue for other creatures, but it's coherent for them. But the gift of the contemplation is wonder, joy, a feeling of relationship. We are not just coming to a deep explanation. That's not what he meant by the archetypal phase of Cartesian science. It's not just about explanation. So, do you want to articulate how it's different? I'm not just saying. Okay, now I know there's turbidity here, and there's a little less over here. We're not just explaining. Ecology, ecologos, it's a science of relationships. Everything moving through everything else. We tend to think of that exclusively in the physical domain.、Mm-hmm. My oak tree, I'm looking at out there, and we certainly know a lot more and appreciate about trees and their capacities and what goes on below the surface and their relationship to the atmosphere. And we're getting bigger and bigger pictures、mm. that are more and more satisfying, that are seemingly more and more holistic, and they are, in one sense. But all those insights still generally come out of a modeling form of science. Yes.、Mm. But there's something else going on. If we were to work with it in a Gertian way, all those things would be included,、mm-hmm. right? But I think the extra piece that we're talking about is this form of contemplation that actually understands that my relationship to the tree actually ever deepens the more specifically I can imagine and perceive those relationships in my imagination, because the tree right now looks to me to be a static being. But all those aspects I named—the atmosphere, the tree itself, the root structure, the earth—that's dynamic all the time.、Mm. And the tree is even growing. Not only leaves, its limbs are expanding as I speak.、Mm. All happening simultaneously. All the time. And we cannot get that through an analytical sensibility, because in an analytical sensibility, all we can do is take all these parts and put them together.、Mm-hmm. But when you take it into your imagination and you start to See the relationships. Something happens, and this becomes quite mysterious. But you experience it as wonder and joy. But there's also a deep feeling of connection because you're actually in your imagination much closer to being true to the phenomena itself, which is dynamic and ever interdependent. 
There's nothing isolated anywhere. Mm -hmm. But we as the creatures we are, for various reasons, mm -hmm. habitually, unconsciously think of things as isolated and we got to figure out how they all go together. When they're already all together, the, the blue, the sun, the night sky, the turbid medium are already all together. And it's through this style of making sense that I can say that. I don't at all claim mm -hmm. I know what's exactly going on. All I'm saying is it feels intellectually truer, even analytically truer. Analytically meaning logically truer. But there's something more yeah. encompassing yeah. because ultimately the judgment is a feeling for truth. When you say something's true, mm -hmm. there's a logic to it. But who judges mm -hmm. the logic as logical or not? That's a feeling. That reminds me of the part of the essay where he talks about behold, where the word theory in the ancient Greek meant behold. And I never thought about the fact that theory, that word, begins with theo, right? And so much about religion. Yes. It's the same root. And how often in religion does the word or the concept of behold, because it's not like look, behold is more encompassing, it's more soul-filled, right? Absolutely. I enjoyed that part and understanding that word in a very different way, the word theory. Mm -hmm. So the two things we've just talked about, the beholding and the organ of perception, this is in the second half of the essay. The first half of the essay mm -hmm. gets us to understanding what an archetypal phenomena is and that there's a cognitive aspect to it. There's these concepts mm -hmm. that are always inherent in our percept, we don't realize it. So we make the implicit explicit. But now the two things we've been talking about, this organ of perception, this is wholly seen through the eyes of the mind because we're talking about the imagination's activity and we create this metaphor that is actual because we now have this organ. It's not a physical organ, mm. but it's an actual organ. <laughs> Our language becomes tricky and we have to be clear about what we mean. Yeah. And now when you go up to behold and you said it's more encompassing, mm -hmm. feeling and thinking are one in a state of behold. Yes. And when they are one, then you can't ever talk about anything in an analytical mode mm. because the whole basis of an analytical mode is thinking over here, park your feeling at the door. Right. But for us, the world reveals itself more and more in our beholding of it in the activity of contemplation. We've conveniently forgotten that we want to be inspired all the time. We want to be inspirited. We want to breathe in the world. And our secular term that whitewashes that feeling, mm. mind, as if mind isn't what we mean by spirit and spirit isn't what we mean by mind in this context of the way we're talking. And there is a Theo, there is a wonder-filled, bigger-than-me, encompassing feeling. And if you don't have that, you're not in a state of beholding. Mm. How you make sense of that is another question, but you cannot deny. I think we've talked more than enough for our listeners for now. And my hope is, is that through our conversation that our listeners will be moved to actually work through the essay themselves. And as you said, you read it three or four times, mm. and then it started to really come together for you. Mm -hmm. And anything worthwhile actually takes three or four times. Certainly for me. So I would recommend listening. People are listening. Listen more than once, for sure. Slow it down and stop it and think about it. It's a very rich essay. There's much in there. 
Okay, Elaine Kosrova. I'm going to say goodbye. Hey, John. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. If you'd like the text of today's reading, Toward a Participative Science, you can find it on our website, natureinstitute.org. Just search for it in issue number 18 of In Context. For more details about Arthur, his work, and a longer version of what was read today, you'll find it at arthurzions.org. Zions is spelled Z-A-J-O-N-C. And you can write to me, John Goldthorpe, at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. Thanks for listening.